Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And also, if you need a sermon notebook, there's still some out in the foyer which you can grab um, so that you can take notes to use for further study and for discussion. Here this morning in Acts chapter 17 is the Apostle Paul as he is engaging with the Athenian scholars, where he is, you could say, talking about the hot topics of his day in a place where Christianity has never been before. As we move into this, uh, as we're entering into this series this fall, this morning, we're looking at what does the Bible say about discussing hot topics. Last week, we looked at what the Bible says about the Bible. Next week, we're looking at what does the Bible say about gender identity, after that marriage, after that homosexuality. The schedule for that's on the back of your bulletin. It also gets emailed out every week. But the reason why we're discussing this in a church and why we're discussing this in worship services and intergenerational worship services is because these are topics and content that are talked about all the time throughout the week. They're talked about in um, in some of, many of our families, they're talked about in our neighborhoods, they're talked about in schools, they're talked about in our workplaces, they're talked about in the newspaper, they're talked about in the magazines in the grocery store aisle, they're talked about in children's cartoons, they're talked about in children's books, they're talked about everywhere in our culture around us, and they're rarely talked about in the church, and that's what we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks. Here this morning, we're looking at how it is that Paul, in particular, engages people and discusses difficult issues with them. And as we move in this passage, I do need to give thanks, just my personal appreciation to Covenant Seminary, where I went to school, and also to Brian Chapel, the president of the school. Just having watched and witnessed him in situations where people were rude, hostile, uh, horrendously disrespectful and condescending, and yet he consistently responded with grace and respect for the people that he was talking to. Also, I need to give credit to Jerem Bars, another professor of mine, who just had great insights into this passage here in Acts chapter 17. Um, let us pray as we begin here this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have set apart this time this morning, that you would send your Spirit to teach us by your Word, or that you would ch- really, Lord, that you would change our hearts and change our attitudes and change our interactions with the people in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was a battle. It was a wrestling match. It was a test of wills. Every day, at the exact same time, Margaret would go into the bathroom and open up the bathroom cabinet, and she would take out a huge bottle of castor oil. And then she would make her way to the kitchen to get a tablespoon. And at the sound of the drawer beginning to open, at the sound of the silverware beginning to rattle, Patches, her Yorkshire Terrier, was struck with fear. It was at this point that no matter where Patches was and no matter what Patches was doing, Patches would immediately sprint to some corner of the house and hide under the bed. And if if he was found under the bed, he would then go try to get into the bathtub. And if he was in the bathtub, he'd then go try to hide behind the recliner to get away from what was about to come. You see, Margaret, at some point in her life, had gotten convinced that that if she gave Patches a dose of castor oil every day, that her beloved Yorkshire Terrier would have strong teeth, a beautiful coat, and a long life. And so out of love, every 24 hours, she would corner patches 
and pin him to the ground and pry open his little doggy mouth as he whimpered and squirmed with and fought with all seven pounds of his might. And then he would proceed, she would proceed to pour the castor oil down his throat. Neither Patches nor Margaret particularly enjoyed their daily wrestling match. Yet this story somehow seems to me to be picturesque of the attitude and the approach that many Christians take with engaging non-Christians and engaging our world. They're not going to like it, but it's good for them. If I can just get the gospel in there some way, somehow, and down their throat, then it is going to do its work. And so our duty is perceived to be is to get the gospel in them one way or another. Well, why such hostile? Why such a hostile approach? Why such hostility? For some, it's because they're convinced that other people would not be interested in discussing or talking these issues at all, and so they've got to jump them. Others believe that, yes, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, and that because it's a spiritual battle, it needs to be won any way possible. But I'm afraid a more far common approach, approach is that Christians in particular engage non-Christians with such hostility because they don't respect them. Because they adopt the attitude um, articulated by Donald Trump recently when he said, you know, for the most part, you can't respect people because most people aren't worthy of respect. And if you're here this morning, for those of you who are here this morning and are not Christians, and if that has been your interactions with Christians, I apologize. I apologize for those who had good intentions and went about it the wrong way. I apologize for those Christians who did not have good intentions, and that's been your interaction with them. For God calls us to respect each and every person. And respect for all people must rule the attitudes of our hearts and be expressed in our conversations with Anybody with whom we interact. So you look at this passage here in Acts chapter 17. I'm not going to focus on the explicit argument that Paul uses in this passage. Our community groups will be discussing that this week. But rather, we're going to examine how Paul engaged people on hot topics. In particular, how he showed them respect to everybody especially to those to those who are opposed to Christianity. We're going to see four different bases for respect that Paul showed, demonstrates in this passage. Follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans' hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. We see here four different things, basis of respect that Paul demonstrates in this passage as he interacts with these idolaters and pagan worshipers and philosophers. The first one is this, is that Paul demonstrates a profound respect for each person on the basis of our common humanity. Notice how Paul begins his speech. He says this, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul is complimenting them. He is not just giving flattery. That was actually something that was forbidden in the Areopagus. Nor is Paul being sarcastic because Paul, in principle, rejected sarcasm. And furthermore, Paul knew that both flattery and sarcasm would simply have angered his hearers rather than winning a hearing. Now, what did Paul do? is that he treated them with respect and dignity, even in their idolatry. Well, what was the basis for Paul's respect to them? The basis was their common humanity, and we see this in verses 24 through 26. Paul declares to them, he says, Listen, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nature of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul says to them, he says, listen, there is one God. And this one God is the maker of heaven and earth. And this one God is the maker of mankind and, mankind, and that includes you and that includes me. And what Paul is referencing here that they did not know and that the Athenians did not understand is that Paul is referencing and drawing on the truth that each and every person that he is speaking to is someone who has been made in the image of God. And he respects them for their common humanity in particular. He respects them because of the image of God that is inherent within them. Psalm 8, the psalmist highlights the inherent dignity, 
worth and value, worthy of respect, bestowed upon each person. Psalm 8 declares, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? What is man? What are human beings? They are like nothing compared to the heavens and the stars and the moon. We are so small. Yet you bestowed him with glory and honor. You crowned him. You have given him dominion. You made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. This is what you have bestowed upon mankind. People who have been made in the image of God. You see, Scripture, this is an important point in Scripture. In, the, in James, as he writes in James 3, he says, he talks about not cursing other people. Why? Here is why. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Why is it wrong to curse people? Not simply because God says it is wrong to curse them. It is more profoundly, it is wrong to curse people because you are, you are cursing something that is made in the image of God. You are cursing something that represents and reflects who God is. And by cursing them, you are not simply cursing a person. You are disrespecting and disregarding and dishonoring God himself. Let me give you an example of this. Consider the Iwo Jima Memorial. A site that many of you are very familiar with. You know, in the Marine Corps Marathon, it's a, it's a milestone that people run to come up and to see the Marine Corps Memorial. Now imagine if all, whatever, is the 20,000 runners who run past the Marine Corps Memorial, imagine if they all ran by and cursed it or flipped it a sign as they ran by. And they say, well, why would we? It's just a bronze piece of metal. Why, what's the big deal? Why would anyone be upset about that? And the reality answer would be, see, that's not just a piece of metal. That's the Iwo Jima Memorial. That, that memorial is the image of people who died and fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima during World War II, during one of the bloodiest battles. That is the battle that represents the spirit of the United States Marine Corps and the United States forces all together in the United States itself. If you are disrespecting that image, you are disrespecting not only the people who are embodied in that image, but you are respect, disrespecting the Marine Corps and the United States itself for a piece of metal. And Scripture is saying if you are disrespecting another person, the reason why it is so wrong to do so is because you are disrespecting someone who is made in the image of God. And because they are made in the image of God, you are disrespecting God himself. And we are called to respect people because of our common humanity, in particular being image bearers. And we honor God by honoring his image inherent in each person. Second area is we're called to respect people because of God's common grace. 
Common grace is the, the good things that God bestows on each and every person, whether you're a Christian or not. He, calls the rain, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He bestows non-Christians with incredible abilities, powers, reasons, mind, intellects, artistry, love, compassion, all kinds of things. It's part of God's common grace that he gives. And Paul acknowledges God's common grace in giving the Athenians and each and every person the ability to think, the ability to reason, because they have a brain, because people believe things, and generally people in their own mind have good reasons why they believe what they believe, reasons that make sense to them. And so Paul, when he is in the Areopagus, is that Paul seeks to understand what the people there believed and why they believed it. And throughout Paul's ministry, Paul demonstrates a deep understanding of the ideas and beliefs and the practices of the people with whom he is engaging. He is a student of people. He sought to understand what people believed and why they believed it out of respect for the common grace that God has stowed upon them. Here in the Areopagus, uh, an artist's rendition of Paul speaking there and a picture of the ruins themselves. As Paul is speaking in the Areopagus, the Areopagus was the supreme authority in religious matters. It was the most respected Athenian court. It was the place where hot topics of the day were engaged and debated. And as Paul begins his speech to them, he quotes two of their own thinkers. And I want you to understand what Paul is doing here and where these quotes come from. Paul says to them, he says, For your own speakers say, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. The first quote comes from, was written by Epimenides from the island of Crete and is quoting a poem that he wrote that was an invocation Quote, to the father and the greatest of the Greek gods, Zeus, spoken by his son, Minos. So this is taken from a prayer to Zeus. And Paul begins with that. And the second quote, for we are indeed his offspring, comes from, uh, was written by a guy named Eratos, who was a Cilician poet. Hold those two thoughts. Also that is, as Paul is walking around, what it tells us, Paul declares, he said, For I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I found an, also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. There's an altar with that said to the unknown God on it. And there's a story behind this altar, which almost certainly um, Paul knew. And the legend behind this altar was that uh, there was a great pestilence, a great hardship, uh, starvation, famine coming across the land that was uncontrollable and couldn't be stopped. And the Athenians sacrificed, made sacrifices to all of their gods and it didn't go away. So they sought out Ep Epimenides, who wrote the invocation to Zeus, who was regarded as a wise man, and they said, Epimenides, what should we do? And Epimenides said, I think you missed somebody. What you need to do is you need to go create an altar to the unknown God because the ones that you're worshiping aren't satisfying and sacrifice to the altar of the unknown God. And once you do that, your pestilence will stop. And they did it. And the legend is that the pestilence stopped as soon as that happened. So Paul comes, quotes an invocation to Zeus, quotes another poet, and identifies a, another altar to an unknown God um, who was just in the pantheon of the plurality of the many gods that they worshipped. Now, as Paul is doing this, what is Paul happening here? Is that Paul 
is respecting the common grace that God has bestowed. Paul is not approving of their ignorance, nor is Paul condoning idol worship in any part. Rather, Paul's starting point is to understand what they believed and why they believed it, and he is showing respect for the common grace of their brain and the belief system that they had of something that people valued there and hold very dear. It was a pattern throughout Paul's life and ministry. Indeed, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus, he is telling other people, telling them about Jesus, and a great uh, riot breaks out because so many people are becoming Christians. And yet Paul respects the beliefs of these idol worshipers, not as valid beliefs, but he respects them because they believe it and value it and hold it to be dear. And in fact, excuse me, and in fact, <clears throat> this is what Acts chapter 19 says in Ephesus. It says, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd after the riot, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Why? For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. It's astounding that Paul in a city of overt idol worship, of the, the guardians of the temple of Artemis, that in the midst of all of the pagan practices that were going on there, which included horrendous and awful things and at times human sacrifice, that even in the midst of a riot that is going on and people losing massive amounts of money because so many people are becoming Christians and not paying their money to be temp idol worshipers, even in the midst of a riot, an unbeliever testifies on behalf of the Christians. An unbeliever testifies on their behalf and their integrity and says, listen, you all know it is self-evident that these men were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Paul, in his engagement in both of these locations and throughout his ministry, showed words and spoke with words that were respectful and gracious while he also proclaimed the truth. Let me give you a different example of this. So one of my seminary professors, a man by the name of Carl Ellis, was an expert in Islam. He was such an expert in Islam that he was asked by a uh, Middle Eastern Muslim nation to come and to teach Islam at their embassy. Not to teach Christianity, not to have a debate between Christians and Islam, but to teach Islam at their embassy. Now, as you imagine, for an Islamic country, to have an infidel coming in and teaching Islam, that is heresy. So what happened was that as this, uh, the, the embassy decided to go forward and to have him teaching this, and so as he was teaching this course on Islam, needless to say what happened is that all of the local imams came to hear what the man had to say, among the other people who were interested in taking the class. And they all gather around, and so he's teaching Islam, and he's emphasizing things about Islam that aren't typically taught in Islam, and undermining certain things within Islam from Islam itself. And in the midst of the class, people were, some of the people were saying, wait a second, that's not true, that's, never been, that's, that's not right, you got that wrong. And he said, well, no, yes it is, Muhammad, Imam. Imam Muhammad, isn't this correct? Isn't this what Islam teaches? Yes it is, yes it is. 
Jamal, isn't this what Islam teaches? You're you're correct. You're correct. That's what what Islam teaches. That here is somebody who so understood what other people believed that he now actually had a hearing to share his own faith. You see, it's a simple litmus test for us, is that can I state, if I'm, if I'm sharing something with somebody, if I'm sharing the truth of Christianity with somebody, can I state what someone else believes with such clarity? Can I state it in such a way that they would actually say, yes, that's what I believe? Yes, that's an accurate representation of, my, of what I believe and of my response and how I feel about these things. Yes, that, yes that's true. And I state this not as a principle of, a de- of debate, but just the principle of being of good communication and having respect for people on the base of God's common grace that he bestows. Let me challenge you. This is a great principle, not just for strangers, but how about for your family members? That in your households, that you actually listen. That you actually listen to the point of understanding what someone believes, why they believe it, why they're doing what they do, that you have listened so well that you have held your tongue so much that you can actually articulate their feelings and what they think in such a way that they would say, yes, you have heard me now. Imagine what would happen if our own houses and our marriages, our relationship with kids and parents, if that level of communication, that level of listening went on as opposed to saying, I know what you believe and I know you're wrong and I don't really care what you believe or why you believe it. What you need to know is that I'm right and I'm going to enforce that upon you. It's a respect for our common humanity and God's common grace. Third area is a respect. So look at respect for God's, our common humanity. Secondly, God, respect for God's common grace. Third area is respect for our common enemy. Notice how people responded to Paul in Acts chapter 17. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Another interaction, he said, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him. Some mocked Paul because of his position and the things that he held and the things that he did and said. Now, as you hear this, so here is his audience. Some are mocking him. Some are scorning him. Some are ridiculing him. But after all, what would you suspect would happen, right? I mean, Paul says this. He says, for the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says, listen, what is the expectation? The expectation is that what you believe is that people will think you're stupid for believing it. That it's foolishness. That it's nonsense. There are people, Paul fully expects that there will be people who are going to mock him because of the truth of Christianity. Now, something that bothers me is that I've heard Christians say things like this. I'm not going to respect someone who won't respect me. How could I respect someone if they haven't shown me respect? How arrogant. How arrogant. And here is Paul going in saying, yes, that's going to happen because Paul knows that the people who are non-believers are not the enemy. In fact, Paul knows that they have the same enemy that we have as Christians. And he states this in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The battle is not against other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, in the heavenly places. You see, the truth is that Satan, the Satan, is the enemy of Christians. And at the same time, the Satan is also the enemy of non-Christians. He is the enemy of Christians, and he is the enemy of non-Christians. We are called not to abuse or insult or condemn them because they have been entrapped in in snares, but we are called to respect other people, even if they abuse, insult, misrepresent, or even curse us, or like Paul, threw him in jail and flogged him, or cursed the Christian message. Why? Well, yes, because of our common humanity. Yes, because of God's common grace, but yes, also because we have a common enemy. We are on the same side of the battle. And we are to pray for and seek the release of those who are held in bondage to Satan's lies. It should therefore be apparent that caricaturing or misrepresenting or mocking someone's beliefs, views, or practices is not only counterproductive, but it is deeply dishonoring and disrespectful to God himself. And if we enter into a position to engage people on hot topics or issues, mocking people or not taking their beliefs, their practices seriously, not only alienates us from those people, but it is dishonoring to God himself. And the reality is is that they should probably, these other people should rightly be offended, not because of the truth of the gospel, but because of the way that you have acted. Because of the attitude and the arrogance and the judgmentalism of Christians. And that should break our hearts, brothers and sisters. It should break our hearts. Because they are not the enemy. But we should respect them because we share a common enemy who is the Satan and his minions. Well, how did... Paul respond to these Athenians who were pagan worshipers and idolaters. Well, he respected their common humanity as image bearers. He respected the common grace bestowed on them, and he respected the reality that we share a common enemy, but he also respected them because of our common sinfulness. Fourthly, I've heard other Christians say things like this. Well, How do you expect me to respect a sinner? I mean, how do you expect me to respect a person who is engaged in such a lifestyle and such lifestyle choices that I find find to be an abomination, that are outrightly sinful, that are a stench in the nostrils of God? How can I respond with respect to such a person? Well, it's because sin is so offensive to God. It ought to be just as distressing to us as it was to Paul. Notice what happens when Paul walked into Athens. It says, now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Notice that first phrase, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Paul is in line at the airport. Paul is biding time. He is 
hanging out, waiting for things to happen and to move forward with the plan that they had. He is just chilling, biding time. And as Paul is looking around, wasting time, all of a sudden he notices that this entire place that he is is full of idols. And what happens to him? It said his spirit was provoked within him. It said he was saddened. He was angered at the effects of the devil. He was distressed over what he saw. He was moved by the blindness and deception that was ruling that place around him. And he was moved for them because, yes, of the common sinfulness, which he makes clear in his speech to them. He says to the men of the Areopagus, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, it's precisely because they are sinners that we are to look at other people with mercy and gentleness, for they are in the need, they are in the same need of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, not just simply as I used to be, but as I do today. That I am as much in need of God's grace and forgiveness today as I was the day before I committed my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I stand united with every person on the earth, sharing a common sinfulness with them. Therefore, when we interact with people who, do not, who are not Christians, we must not dishonor them, nor act like the Pharisees and thank God that we're not like them. But remember that we, in the plural, united with them, are sinners. And that when you look at the Ten Commandments, it levels the playing field before God that there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who stands before him. And that doesn't only include non-Christians, it includes you and it includes me. And so we respect people because of our common sinfulness and therefore must never look down on anyone as unworthy of our love, unworthy of our honor, unworthy of our respect, lest we would only be disqualifying ourselves. For whoever it is that we come across, whatever it is they have done and do in their life or what they believe, we are one with them in our humanity and one with them in our sinfulness. And what was God's response to our sinfulness? He became like us. He became like us and so identified with us. So identified with us that people actually thought he was a sinner, though he never sinned in his whole life. He was so identified with us that Scripture says that he became sin for us so that we, so that we might actually become the righteousness of God, something that we completely are not, that that would be possible through Jesus Christ who became like us so that we might become like him. And it is through and in our sinfulness, Scripture tells us that while we were the enemies, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were in the midst of our sinfulness and as sinners, Christ died for you. And he showed you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not after you got your act cleaned up, but in the midst of your sinfulness, he showed his grace to you. And so our response to the sin of others 
must be the same grace that God has extended to each and every one of us. Because we are united in our sinfulness, and we are united still in our need for a Savior each and every day and each and every moment. We're to respect each and every person as image bearers of God and must not have an adversarial or hostile or antagonistic attitude with non-Christians or with anybody else that we come across. So it was. Every 24 hours, the battle royale ensued. Margaret and Patches would have their wrestling match. And in the midst of one of these epic battles, Patches managed to roll over and and fling out a sideways kick, and Patches sent the dreaded bottle of castor oil flying across the kitchen floor, and it exploded on the ground. It was a moment of victory for the seven-pound canine. And to Margaret's utter shock and surprise, she came back and was completely dumbfounded. Because as she went away to get a towel to clean up the mess, she came back into the room, and Patches was actually there in the kitchen licking the castor oil up off the floor. As it turned out, Patches liked castor oil. But Patches didn't like being jumped and pinned down to the ground and having its little doggy mouth open and having poured down its throat. We are not in a battle with non-Christians, but we are called to respect them because of our common humanity, because of God's common grace, because we share a common enemy, and because of our common sinfulness. And God has called us to be light in the darkness, to engage a broken and sinful world to engage a broken and sin-filled world with the hope and joy and peace of Jesus Christ. And that begins with us honoring God by respecting each and every person who has been made in his image. May that be true of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you did not look at us in disgust. That you did not look down on us and despise us and say, what a worthless wretch, which you rightfully could have done. But rather, Lord, you left your home in heaven. You left the glory of being at the right hand of God, and you descended into the brokenness of the muck and the mire and the darkness and the mess and the shame and the guilt and the judgmentalism of this world and were mocked and beaten and tortured and killed for me, for my brothers and sisters here, and for those who will turn and trust in you. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you have put us here not to be an entity unto ourselves, but to be a light to the nations, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, to show the world the love that you have shown to us through him. Lord, would you work that in our midst? Lord, would a broken world be so attracted to us as they were attracted to Jesus Christ? And Father, we come before you and we confess and repent of our arrogance and pride and judgmentalism that we have spiritualized, and the fault is nothing but our own pride. 
Father, we confess that for our engagement with other people outside of our homes. Lord, we confess that for our engagement with people with whom we share the same roof, for some of us with whom we share the same bed. Lord, forgive us. And may the grace that you have shown it to us, Lord, may that characterize our relationships with each and every person made in your image. In the name of Jesus Christ, who died to restore the image that was broken and to make it new again, we pray. Amen. Let the Lord Jesus just work in your heart as we stand and sing to him. Please rise.